Warning, this episode contains triggering material, including miscarriage, abuse, sex, suicide, mental health, all the things. You've been warned. I can't believe I'm sharing all this information and people are going to listen to this. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by The Parlor Hair and Body Salon. With a quick reminder, it's okay to take time for yourself. Hi, I'm Chelsea. You're listening to Beyond the Picket Fence, where you're invited to take a break from keeping it together. Let's get real. This week, we are going to talk to my friend Bethany. I don't really remember exactly how we became friends. Sometimes I just insert myself into people's lives. Like if I like them, I kind of just show up and say, hey, we're friends now. I think maybe I helped her unload some boxes when she was moving in. I can't remember exactly. I do know we both have a fear of gas stations, especially at night. So we used to send each other messages when getting gas, like, hey, I'm getting gas. If you don't hear from me again, send someone to find me. I've been taken. (laughs) Even though I consider Bethany a close friend, I didn't know what was in her story ahead. I knew she had struggled with mental health and had a past in finger quotes but for whatever reason i never really knew what was hiding in her past and how has she grown to overcome it let's find out so i'm bethany i'm 38 i'll be 39 this summer a week after chelsea's birthday (laughs) and i'm a mother of two girls i'm a girl mom i love it i'm also a dog mom and a cat mom and a wife. My husband and I have been married for almost 16 years. I rescue animals for fun. I just take in the strays because I can't not take them in. (laughs) I am a fashion seamstress. I alter clothing for people. And then I also teach sewing lessons. So I have students. And I am also a student myself at Central Arizona for communications and criminal justice to become a victim's advocate. I am still a seamstress, but I decided to go back to school because my passion is in advocacy work for victims of abuse or crimes or of anything that has happened to them that causes trauma. And I'm passionate about it because I feel like I could have used that. I could have used an advocate, someone who sat with me and talked with me and cried with me and just understood me. So I want to do advocacy work for others and be able to be a type of hope for them that it does get better, that this is just a hard spot in your life but there is healing and there is overcoming. And I especially want to do advocacy work for children. I'm volunteering with CASA for foster kids. And it means a lot to me to be able to be some sort of positive adult influence in these children's lives when they have been failed over and over again by adults. It's just through my own experience that is why I want to go into advocacy work. My heart will always lean towards the children because being a child victim of abuse myself, 
And like having to deal with people not believing you, I've chosen, I will always believe children first. You know, adults can easily lie, but children have a harder time doing that. Through her own experience, we got a glimpse into some of the difficult Bethany understands, but to completely understand, we must go back to when Bethany was a child. I was probably about five, six years old. My parents got divorced due to infidelity. And my dad got remarried like three months after the divorce was finalized. And all of a sudden I had a stepmom and a stepbrother. And then life became volatile and tumultuous. It wasn't quiet and peaceful anymore. It was loud and scary. There was a lot of yelling, a lot of screaming, a lot of things breaking in the house. And there was physical abuse as well. It was hard to go from this quiet life to all of a sudden be surrounded by chaos. It definitely sent me into, I guess, a spiral of anxiety and depression at a very young age. I would get night terrors. Loud noises were the worst. Like, I guess kind of how like when someone comes back from war and something's loud and then they just like react like they have to hide under something. That's the best way I can describe it is that when people in the house got loud, I felt like I had to hide somewhere. I know it's pretty common in divorce for the children to be like shared. Some kids go from house to house. Some kids only stay with one parent. So I asked Bethany what that looked like in her situation. I spent most of my time at my mom's and my dad had me every other weekend and like every Wednesday. So middle of the week to every other weekend. I hated going to my dad's house. I hated it. It was just terrifying. And the worst was when my dad would leave for work Monday morning and my stepmom had to get me off to school. So after he would leave for work, I didn't have that safety net to hold on to. It was me and I was afraid. There was a lot of emotional and verbal abuse thrown my way when my dad wasn't around. And every once in a while, physical abuse. I got called a slob for like not rinsing my dishes off. I was seven. No one taught me that. So you can't just like expect a seven-year-old to know. It has to be learned. Listening to Bethany, this gave me an aha moment. And I just real quickly wanted to slip this in. I'm often overwhelmed by the mess of my home. And I'm always thinking like, why can't everyone just help me clean up? This little reminder helped me realize I have to teach my kids things if I want them to help me. Hello. So the day I was editing this, I had been doing my kids laundry and I had my kids who are seven and four help me fold and I taught them. It was actually a really cool, fun moment. So thank you, Bethany, for helping me with this reminder that kids need to be taught. Okay, back to the story. Bethany was being mistreated by her stepmother. I got yanked and screamed at in the face for not pushing my chair in from the dinner table. Like those are two simple little things that I don't know how anyone in their right mind can escalate to such 
monstrous and hateful behavior and words towards a child. It was scary being there. I remember telling my mom about it. And so she talked to my dad about it. And my dad talks to my stepmom about it. And I'm left alone with her again. And it gets back to me. And I'm to blame. I'm yelled at. I'm screamed at. I'm hit in some way with something, whether it be a wooden spoon or whatever she had in her hand. So I stopped telling people. I stopped saying anything because it was just, it wasn't going to get fixed. I was going to be abused over it. She was 11 when her mom moved to Washington. She went with her, but after living in Washington, Bethany developed seasonal afflicted depression disorder. Her body was so used to the beautiful California weather, it couldn't handle the winter slash cloudiness of Washington. She was sent back to California to live with her dad full time. And that's when I started having like a suicidal ideation. I was depressed, anxious constantly, and I didn't want to live if I had to live in hell. You know, it literally felt like hell. Bethany grew up in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and had been taught to pray. I remember like one night just praying to God, like, please bring me home. I don't want to live anymore if this is how I have to live. Like, just take me home already because I'd rather be with you, Heavenly Father, than with my earthly father. And it was so hard to like get through that and the ways I would think about how could I just end my life and not deal with this anymore and not be blamed for literally everything or yelled at for everything or told that there wasn't finances for me to do, you know, extracurricular activities or new clothes that I needed because I was growing, you know, teenager and shoes. Like I was constantly told, oh, there's There's no money for that. I was the redheaded stepchild without having red hair. (laughs) I actually ran away a lot. So I had two friends that I went to school with and church with. And they both lived within walking distance of my house. And I ran away to their houses all the time. I was always running away. No one knew that I had run away, or at least it didn't seem like anyone knew. No one seemed to acknowledge that I had. And when I would come back, it was like they didn't even know I was gone. Well, how long would you run away for? Like days or hours? I would say the longest was a weekend. But now as an adult, and I kind of look back on things, I do wonder if my friend's parents like called my dad and said, hey, Bethany's here. We're just going to let her stay here to like cool off or, you know, have some time and uh, we'll send her home when she's ready. And it was probably just some sort of silent agreement between them that I was never aware of. And did your friend's parents know what was going on? They didn't see it, but they knew from things I had told them. And, you know, it's kind of a sticky situation to call like 
in your heart, you want to call CPS and say, I think a, you know, a welfare check needs to be done. But at the same time, it's like, do you want to uproot and upset this child that's already gone through a whole lot and put them in a system that is also very broken? And I have a feeling that my friend's parents probably did go through those thought processes. Because as an adult now, I go through those thought processes. Yeah, I think that's a good way to see both sides. With all of this going on into Bethany's tween years, this loneliness began to manifest itself in other ways. I so desperately wanted to be loved and wanted because at home I did not feel loved and wanted. And there were times that was made very clear that I wasn't wanted. And I went searching for love through boys. I did. I like, I'm going to be honest. I was desperate and I threw myself at boys because I just wanted someone to care about me. And I knew I was straight, you know, at a young age. So boys, it was to feel love. I made a lot of mistakes. I was promiscuous. And on one hand, I regret it because of another, you know, downward emotional spiral that it put me through. But on the other hand, those experiences led me to realize why I was doing it. Like it took me a long time to to realize why I did that. Because, you know, at that time, you're just when you see that some girl's sleeping around, you're like, what a slut, you know? I didn't see myself as a slut. I saw myself as someone who just wanted to be loved so badly. And so I, I look at other people differently, you know, when I find out that they are promiscuous. I think there's something deeper there. It's not a, you know, like another check mark off their list. It's deeper than that. And I had boyfriends that some fulfilled that, that need to be loved. And, and when I go into their homes and meet their families, I immediately attached myself to their parents and wanted them, you know, to be my parents. But it wasn't good. You know, because in between boyfriends, there was a lot of other guys and a lot of other experiences. And I didn't get into the party scene with drugs and drinking. I actually joined like this gang, not gang by the terms of like Bloods and Crips, but police would consider them a gang. We were a straight edge. So like we chose not to do drugs and not to drink. And it was all about like unity and the music and having a healthy body. And to me, that fell in line with gospel teachings. And I was like, yeah, I could do this. And that's where I felt loved. And that's where I felt wanted. And that's where I felt like I belonged. This is pretty foreign to me. I feel like the word gang to me has a negative connotation. So I wanted to know more about, you know, gang life. So gang life. We would be out all hours of the night vandalizing. I didn't get into tagging, but some were tagging. I mostly stole things like street signs and the road cones and little newspaper. What do you call them? Where like, I don't even know if newspapers exist anymore, but (laughs) the things that you would stick newspapers in and you'd like put in the quarter and, you know, pull a newspaper out. One was loose. So we like, picked up the whole thing and put it in someone's truck (laughs) and we just stole the whole like the whole newspaper holder 
off of a sidewalk and we'd, we'd go to parties. Actually, we'd go to parties that we knew were, were going to be drinking and we'd go in there and just start like taking all the alcohol and dumping it down the sink. And like, we'd walk into all the bedrooms. I probably saved a few rapes from happening. Who knows? Some of them would like get into fights. I never got into the fights, but some like the boys in our gang, they'd get into brawling fights with the drunk kids. And so that was the trouble we got into. So there you go. Insight into Straight Edge, the gang. Bethany was in the gang from ages 15 to about 17 years old. Obviously, within this age range, she got her driver's license. And I got into a car accident and I rear-ended someone because I fell asleep. It was like the middle of the day and I fell asleep driving down just a random, regular, busy road. It was called Los Angeles Avenue. And, uh, you know, there's street lights and all that. And I rear-ended this car like big time and I had a stick shift. So instead of hitting the brake, I accidentally hit the, the gas and rear-ended him a second time. It was so bad, Chels. It was bad. And I dealt with a lot of back and neck pain. And we couldn't figure out like why I would just fall asleep randomly. During all of this time, she had been staying with friends and her brother and kind of just moving around to avoid being at her stepmom's house. It was her junior and senior year. Her mom had gotten an apartment in California again, but went back to Washington. So she was living in that apartment, kind of on her own, at 17 years old. So 17, I'm on my own, my mom's apartment, and I have a job. I'm going to school early in the morning. So it was called zero period. We'd start like an hour early before everybody else did, and we'd get out at noon. And I'd start going to work from then, and I had a job working with kids after school program, working alongside a lot of really cute guys that once again, I just like, I was alone. I was lonely. I had no one around to like take care of me like a 17 year old should still be taken care of. You know, I was still a kid and my brain wasn't fully developed and I was still trying to understand life and paying bills like for my mom at the same time. That was just a lot of responsibility. I grew up feeling like no one was going to be responsible for college for me. And there was never this encouragement to go to college. But I, I really just wanted to leave, you know? And I had an art teacher my senior year and she really encouraged me to seek out like art colleges because I wanted to be a fashion designer and I excelled in art and I was in the highest art class you could get into in school. So she actually like filled out information for me to like three different art colleges. And I heard back from one of them and I got accepted. And so I was like, yes, I am busting out of this like hellhole, and I'm going to go to art school and it's going to be awesome. And it was in Long Beach, California. So it was like an hour and a half away from where I grew up in Ventura County. And I was like, okay, perfect distance. Yay! She was so excited. She was going somewhere. Yes, exciting, right? Unfortunately, nope. College was terrible. 
no one prepared me for it. I didn't know what I was doing. Like Long Beach was actually really scary. And art school was like a whole new level of people that were coming out and expressing themselves because they were finally away from home. You know, like they had to be a certain person at home. And when they moved away to school, they were someone else. They got to reinvent themselves. And some of that was actually horrifying for me. Like some kids would walk around campus almost naked. Like I saw a lot of ball sacks and and our school didn't have a dress code. It was very much like free to express yourself. And I saw just a lot of things that I wasn't used to. Seeing these things started to trigger memories for Bethany. She started to remember things that had happened to her as a toddler. And I started remembering that I had been molested. And at the time, I didn't know who it was who had done it. I I couldn't remember quite that, but I had remembered being shown pornography while being molested. And I was probably about three or four. And this experience at art school and seeing everything that I saw kind of just like brought that all back of like memories of the pornography. And when I recognized that I had seen porn at a young age, that's when the recollection of what was happening to me while I was seeing porn came back. But it was like I couldn't picture the face of the person. and I couldn't picture where I was. And that that was so hard because it was like this ambiguous memory. I felt very much conflicted. Like, is this a real memory or did my mind just make this up? How do I go about telling anybody this? Because I can't remember the full thing. And and no one talked about suppressed memories at that time. At least I didn't hear about it. And then once again, I fell back into this promiscuous lifestyle. It was like every time something got hard, I would find someone to sleep with. I don't know if you would consider that like a sex addiction or what, but it was like, this is how I coped. I've heard of this being called a buffer. This idea of whatever you use to get your hit of dopamine. We all do it. Some habits are more destructive than others. Some use drugs, alcohol, pornography, sex. Others use scrolling social media, video games, shopping, working out. There are negative and positive buffers. So I encourage you to be aware of what you're using as a buffer. With these scary memories resurfacing, she was unsure if it was real. And if so, what should she do about it? I didn't tell anyone. I kept it my secret for 10 years. Did you suppress it and try to ignore it? I did. After remembering that, I do remember when I would be intimate with someone and something would happen, it would like kind of send me back to that memory of like, oh, no, I don't like being touched like that, you know? But I didn't go through that as a teenager. But it wasn't until I remembered the molestation that now my body was reacting to certain forms of intimacy. Eventually, these aversions led her to take a break 
from sleeping around. I felt so dirty. And I conclude it now to feeling dirty because I was remembering being molested, not feeling dirty because I was looking to be loved by someone and being intimate with someone. Growing up in church, we are taught abstinence till marriage. I wanted to know if she felt any shame that way and if that had affected her church attendance. I felt like I didn't belong at church. I felt like I wasn't good enough and that no one wanted me there because I lived a different type of life that I had to keep hidden. Church at that time felt like it was for perfected people. And I was far from, I didn't realize at that time that it was all of us were struggling with something, you know, every single one of us struggles with something. And I just felt like I didn't belong. I didn't feel welcome. I did feel a lot of shame. And so if I didn't go to church, then I didn't feel shamed. So I went through a lot of inactivity, you know, kind of back and forth. After a long span of not going to church, Bethany came across an institute building and decided to go see what it was all about. Institute provides religious education for young adults in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. She met two girls who ended up eventually becoming her roommates. Living with them really helped me become a better person and get closer to living the gospel and closer to Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. Even though all of us were struggling with something, it was like we helped one another, but they saved me. Growing up, even when I wasn't active or I was making choices that I shouldn't have been making, I always knew God was there. And I knew that Jesus was there. And I knew that Christ's gospel was true, but I didn't feel like I was meant to be in it. I didn't feel like I belonged in it. I felt like I wasn't enough for it, that I didn't deserve it. Have you ever felt like this? If you feel this now, I just hope this message finds you and encircles you with love. No matter what, you are worthy of love. You belong, you are enough, and you deserve it. After meeting my roommates, Things were looking up. I still made mistakes, you know, here and there, but I focused on the repentance process and working through them and getting better for myself. I feel bad for all the people that I possibly have hurt by using them to try to get this fix on wanting to be loved. I don't know, maybe they were using me too, but there are times where now, in my older life, I'm like, wow, I feel really bad. What if I hurt that person? What if they felt used by me? And, and I wasn't trying to hurt them, but I, I do. I feel very bad. And I actually made amends with some, whoever I could get a hold of or remembered, you know, who it was and their name, if I was still in touch with any of them. I did try to make amends with them. And some of them were like, oh, it's not a big deal, you know, and others were like, yeah, I thought we could actually have something more. And I was like, oh, gosh, I didn't realize that. Like, <laughs> but, I think not judging yourself and allowing yourself to realize you just wanted love. Yeah, that's totally a normal human reaction to after going through things that you've gone through. 
Yeah. And I was a really angry teenager and an angry young adult. Everything was just the worst, you know, like, oh my gosh, that's the worst. But I didn't know what joy felt like. I didn't know how to be like real happy. It was like fake happy or temporary happiness or happy because something went wrong for someone else. Like I was miserable, absolutely miserable. After a year with her roommates, they all began to marry off and go on missions for their church. So Bethany moved back in with her dad. When her friends were going on missions, she thought, hey, maybe I'm supposed to be doing that. In the LDS church, the youth, especially boys, are encouraged to serve a mission. They are sent to different parts of the world to teach and to share the gospel and serve others in need. At that time, boys could go on a two-year mission at age 18. Women could go at age 21 for 18 months. The ages have since changed. Bethany was never really taught by her parents to seek guidance for herself through prayer. This is really like dumb when you're brought up in the church, but you're not really taught anything by the people that are supposed to be teaching you. I wasn't taught to have personal revelation. I wasn't taught to like take things to God. I was taught to do what was expected of me. And that was such a huge disservice for my youth because I could have learned so much more and been in a better place throughout my young adulthood, hopefully. But my dad would talk about how like I should go on a mission. You know, I want you to go on a mission. I expect you to go on a mission. And so I'm like, well, I guess now's the time to prepare because I'll be 21 soon. And so I started preparing to go on a mission and I went to mission prep classes and I loved everything I was learning. I loved all that I was learning, but I never got that like confirmation that I was supposed to serve a mission. And I didn't know that I was supposed to ask for that confirmation. And I remember meeting with the young adult ward branch president at the time. And it was, this was a really discouraging appointment because he blatantly said that I was a distraction in mission prep for the boys that are trying to actually serve missions and that I'm just in there to get attention from the guys. I remember just being like dumbfounded. I remember saying, well, my dad wants me to serve a mission. And he's like, well, you're not in there for the right reason. And I left that appointment just like, just really confused as to what I was supposed to do. And at the time, my best friend's dad was the bishop of my home ward. So I went and talked with him about it. And he said, well, have you prayed about serving a mission? Have you asked God, like, are you supposed to serve a mission? I said, I didn't know I could do that. I didn't know. Like, I thought dad got all those answers. He's, you know, the patriarch of the family. He receives all the personal revelation for the family. I thought he got those answers. I didn't know I could get those answers. So whenever church talked about personal revelation, I thought it was meant for like, you know, when you're future parents. And this is what happens when you grow up in a house where the father of the family uh, teaches you the gospel according to themselves instead of to the actual word of Christ. 
Bethany kept going to missionary preparation classes and doing all the things to do to prepare to serve a mission. In the meantime, she had been praying to know if this was indeed what she should be doing, with no apparent answer. I was like, am I praying wrong? Do I not, like, am I asking the wrong questions? Am I getting the answer and I don't recognize it? It just was so unprepared for this type of prayer and receiving answers. I got to the point where I sent in my mission papers and I received a call. And when the call came in the mail and I opened it and it said, you know, you'll be serving in the Calgary, Alberta mission. I looked at it and I, there was like no feeling, you know, like you see missionaries get their calls and they're just like excited and they're overwhelmed with like spiritual emotions. I felt literally nothing. There's no feeling coming out of me whatsoever. And I just set them down and walked away. And it took me a few days to like realize that was my answer, that I wasn't supposed to go. And so I decided to take a break from home again because it was just still not good. Did you get in trouble for saying you didn't want to go? Or did you just not tell your dad and you just left? (laughs) You know what? You know how I handled it? This is so sad. Instead of telling him I didn't want to go, I told him I wasn't worthy. Oh my gosh, Bethany. Yeah. You made up some stupid crap. Yep. Just, you know, that is the saddest thing I ever heard. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And so then there was no like pushing me, you know? But you were worthy to go? I was worthy to go, but I didn't feel like I could tell him. This part breaks my heart that instead of having her own back, she felt it was easier to lie about her own worthiness to avoid her dad's disappointment. After that, Bethany took another break from home. She moved in with her brother and fell into another deep depression. Following her pattern, she again became intimately involved with guys. Some of her friends moved to Utah, and she followed to try yet again to start over. I said, okay, another fresh start. Let's let's start over. Let's try to be better. I was doing pretty good for a while. And then I met someone. And... I really liked him. I really liked him. I actually felt a connection to this person. And I I thought it was going to be more. And we messed up. And at this time, I was like, well, it's okay that we mess up because maybe we'll get married. You know, maybe we're heading down that road. And I actually ended up getting pregnant. Yeah, I'm pregnant. And I'm like, crap, I'm pregnant. Let's take a break. Want more of Beyond the Picket Fence? Well, join us in our free Facebook community. This community is our secret little place to escape all of the perfection we see here on social media and connect with women just like you who are ready to be done comparing and start being compassionate to themselves and others. Find it at facebook.com slash groups slash beyond the picket fence. Link also in the show notes. Can't wait to see you in there. Now back to the story. Bethany had just found out she's pregnant. Crap, I'm pregnant. And uh, I had to tell my family. And my dad's advice was get married as soon as possible. And his parents' advice was wait it out a little bit. And we talked about like what we should do. And 
it was very clear that I wasn't the person he wanted to be with forever. And that, that hurt because here I was like with child, his child, and he was trying to talk about like, well, what are other ways we could make this work without getting married? And I, I remember telling him like, if we don't get married, I have to move away from Utah. I don't have family here. I have no one here to help me raise this baby. And I'd probably have to go to California or Washington. And then you wouldn't have a relationship with this child. And I think he was trying to work out in his head how it could be possible without having to marry me. <laughs> and I don't blame him. I really don't. I get it. I don't think people should get married just because they're pregnant. I don't believe in that at all. While figuring this out and trying to make decisions, Bethany had gone to meet his parents. And when they returned, she started bleeding. I was bleeding profusely. And I just kept thinking, like, this can't be my period because this hurts so bad. And it was so much. And it was so thick. It was so thick. I think I was about eight weeks along. At that time, she went to the doctor, and after an internal ultrasound and blood work, the doctor called and let her know it was not a viable pregnancy. Her HCG levels were so low, and she was going to miscarry. My boyfriend at the time, I know he stressed out about that and thought it was his fault because there's a lot of medical conditions on his side of the family. And I was like, well, it's my fault because it's in me. In this moment, my human brain jumped to the uncomfortable question. At this point, did she feel the devastation that we know can come with miscarriage? Or did she feel like, phew, a little bit of relief? I think it was both. I was in complete despair because this was a life beginning inside of me. And then it was gone. Like I was mourning the loss of something that was never mine. You know what I mean? It, it's like an Im ambiguous loss, ambiguous grief. It just, no one talks about that, you know? But at the same time, it was this relief. Okay, we don't have to rush and get married. Okay, we don't have to like figure out these plans on what we're going to do. But it was also incredibly physically painful and emotionally painful that it was a lot to go through. Needless to say, they broke up shortly after that. Again, Bethany turned to seeking anyone who would make out or sleep with her to fill that void. I didn't know how to self-soothe in a way that I was looking for someone else to take my problems away from me. And I went inactive again. That was like one of the lowest points of my life, I believe. One of the most depressing and saddest points of my life. I just was like, there's something wrong with me. What is wrong with me? Like, I am so incredibly just messed up and broken. No one's going to want me. I really believed that no one would want me. Five months later, Bethany met Robert. When I met Robert, I had already decided that I was going to move back to California and just live with friends. I did fall for him pretty quickly, but I was like trying not to fall for him. I was like, I'm never getting married. I'm never having a family. I don't even want that. You know, I've been hurt so much that 
I didn't want it anymore. I didn't feel like I deserved any of that joy. And I said, I'm moving back to California. So just want to let you know not to get too involved. Like it's not going to go anywhere. And he was like, okay. And he was smart. He was smart. He took it slow and just kept checking in on me and wanted to go out. We'd hang out. And he was trying to be like my friend. And after almost a month, he tried to tell me that he loved me. And I stopped him. I said, no, don't ever say that to me. Like, I just, you need to go. I hate you. You need to get out of my life. Because I didn't want to hear it. I had already come to this conclusion that I did not deserve to be loved. And it was really stupid of me to keep trying to find love when it wasn't going to happen. And this guy, he's so dumb for telling me that he loves me. There's no reason for him to love me. Like, I really believed that. There's no reason for him to love me. I have nothing to give him. And he still wouldn't leave me alone. So then I ended up not moving back to California. She did go home to California for a wedding. And while she was getting ready, she experienced what she had always hoped for, but never gotten. Communication from God. I look at the mirror and all of a sudden, I don't know if it was like if I was hearing a voice with my ears or hearing a voice with my head, but it was very clear. And it said, Bethany, I've given you everything that you've asked for in a partner and you are dismissing him. And I was like, what is this? Since when does God speak to me? If you heard that little noise, that was her smacking her forehead. It was so cute. I had to sit down and I had to sit with that for a moment. I had to let those words marinate on me and just, I was like, what the hell? Like, what do you mean? He's everything I've I've asked for. What do you mean? I'm dismissing him. Yeah, he tried to tell me he loved me. Like, I just thought about who Robert was as a person and what I knew of him. And it was like, he checked all the boxes of what I knew I needed in my life and the type of person I needed. And I was like, why am I forcing him away from me? Why am I pushing him away and not accepting that he wants to love me? And like, God just confirmed that he wants to love me. So I called Robert up like right away. (laughs) And I told him I wanted to marry him. How did he react? He's just said, I want to marry you too. After the wedding, she went back to Utah and they decided they should probably actually start dating. And Robert requested she had to stop saying she hated him. (laughs) And they went all in. So then I made Robert my boyfriend. He was my boyfriend. And we got engaged and I tried to convince him to elope. (laughs) He was not having it. (laughs) Bethany had always been really private. She'd never divulged that she had grown up in abuse. She never told her boyfriends or roommates. No one had really ever met her family. I guess I just played it off of it. It was just me. (laughs) I never talked about my home life. I never talked about my family to people. However, this was her fiance. She needed to divulge some things. I was curious as to what that looked like. He had to meet my dad and my stepmom. I divulged to him the type of abuse I received from them. And he believed me. 
You know, it's not like he was like, nah, what are you talking about? The fact that she said this showed me just how long she had gone feeling invalidated, like no one believed her. So thank you, Robert, for believing her. He believed me. He accepted the broken person that I was. And he loved me wholeheartedly. He is everything to me because he's exactly what I personally needed in my life. We got married. We accidentally started a family. Like, <laughs> Go into that a little bit. Why didn't you want a family? I was scared to be a parent because I didn't want to mess up like I feel my parents messed up. I was afraid that I was going to be abusive too, that I wouldn't know how to break the cycle. And then also having that miscarriage, I was afraid to even try to get pregnant. I didn't want to go through that again. That was traumatizing and it hurt. And it broke me into little pieces that had to be put back together slowly. Going back to before accidentally starting her family, Bethany had gotten really sick. I would have migraines for like two weeks straight without being able to stand noise and light. I didn't want to eat. And so I was dropping all this weight and I was sick. And then when I would eat, I'd go to the bathroom. It would just be blood. And so my automatic thought is, crap, I have colon cancer. I'm 25 years old and I have colon cancer. After a lot of doctor's appointments and blood work, she was sent to an immunologist. He tested me for autoimmune diseases and it came back positive for celiac disease. And we didn't know what that was. So celiac disease is when you can't eat gluten, rye, or barley because the proteins in those grains will physically tear apart the inside of your small intestine. And that's why I was losing weight. I was losing nourishment. It was affecting like the frontal lobe of my brain. It causes infertility or unviable pregnancies. And it causes depression and anxiety if you're not eating a gluten-free diet in order to control it. After going on gluten-free diet, her body was doing great and creating the perfect atmosphere to grow a baby. She was pregnant with her first daughter, Emmy. Pregnancy was not good for Bethany. Her morning sickness went past morning and actually past the first trimester. She couldn't keep anything down and became malnourished. This malnourishment was so bad, Bethany slipped into deep depression. Then, prenatal psychosis. She began having hallucinations that she was going to be a terrible mother. And I called Robert at work, and... I don't remember making this phone call, but the way he said it back to me was that I called him and my voice was very calm and it was just sure of itself. And I said, Robert, I'm going to drive to the hospital. I'm going to go ask them to cut the baby out of me and give her to somebody else. Like I had this plan in my head unconsciously in my head and that it all made sense. And he was like, um, how about you stay put? And he comes rushing home from work. He's like, what's going on? I was just like, well, I'm not going to be a good mom. Like it just, I'm not going to be a good mom. She needs to go to somebody else. He's like, you're not making any sense. 
and talked to my OBGYN, you know, made an appointment. He tried to set me up with prenatal psychologists. No one would take me. One psychologist said she wasn't taking new clients. And another one said, I don't do that anymore. (laughs) Those were her words. I don't take in pregnant women anymore. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So this was like 12 years ago. So prenatal psychosis, I don't think it was a diagnosis that was really talked about, but my OBGYN told me that's what I had. And so then I had to go find some like family therapist and talk to her about my anxieties. And it did help. It would have been nice to see someone that like qualified in prenatal psychosis, but nope. Eventually the baby came. Bethany was skinnier after pregnancy than she was before pregnancy. She recovered from that and four years later became pregnant with her second daughter, Maggie. It was a much healthier pregnancy, but after, Bethany again struggled with postpartum psychosis. Maggie had a hard time nursing, so there were many sleepless nights of nursing, then pumping, which is one of the worst things ever, by the way. Feeding became a huge problem. And from being tired, Bethany began the hallucinations again. It was this experience that encouraged Bethany to switch to formula feeding. Fair warning, this story is very hard to hear and was very vulnerable of Bethany to share. So put yourself into her shoes moving forward and leave your judgment panties at the door. If you can't be completely judgment-free, I suggest you skip down five minutes. This postpartum psychosis started to send me into this like hallucination that I needed to die. And so did the girls. And, but there was no plan in my head of how that was going to happen. It was just this hallucination that, okay, it was time for us to die. It's time for us to go. And I woke up from that hallucination in the process of putting a pillow over Maggie's face. Oh no. You don't even know you're doing it. You have no idea. You, your mind isn't controlled by you anymore. Right in this instant, a friend from church came running through her front door. She must have had some divine intervention because she was like, hey, are you okay? And I was like, I turn, I'm like, no, I am not okay. And I hand her Maggie and Emmy's in her room crying. So I don't even know if I did anything to her. I have no recollection of this. So she went in to Emmy's room with Maggie and is calming everybody down. And I get on the phone and I just start dialing like the suicide hotline. And I talked to someone and I said, this is what I think I was doing. And this is what I'm going through. And they just talked me down off this ledge. Is it scary to think like at that point, could someone call CPS on you? Like, were you afraid to tell someone because they could call on you? Yes, I was so scared. I was so scared to tell someone because I didn't want CPS called on me. I knew that there was a healthy person somewhere in here that could take care of these kids and take care of myself. But I I didn't know how to get to that point. I didn't get the help because I was scared if I went seeking for help that the kids would be taken from me. So only a few ladies from church knew, and they helped by setting up meals for the family, as well as people coming over to help make sure Bethany got enough sleep. I wanted to know if she told Robert 
And how did he handle it? Yes, Robert knew and he was terrified. But I told him why I didn't want to tell anybody that I was so scared that the girls would be taken away and that I'd have to like be arrested or something. Like I was so scared. Everything was running through my head. Eventually, life normalized again. And before she knew it, they were moving. It was after this move, Bethany began to have flashbacks to her molestation. Her daughter was at that same age that she was when this happened to her. Bethany became very protective over Emmy, and it triggered her memories again. This time, she remembered who it was. And I was projecting. I had become so overprotective of her, and Robert's family was just like, what's up with that? And he was like, what's going on? And, and I was having like these just emotional meltdowns of not understand what was going on with me. And then it, it just like, it clicked one day. I know who molested me. I know what happened. This person had since passed on. She had decided to tell Robert who it was. When telling her family, she decided she was just going to tell them what had happened, but not who it was. I was finally very open about it. And they said, well, who was it? I said, I am not ready for that yet. The plus side is that it wasn't a family member. So it's not like anybody in the family really has to be concerned about that. Um, I feel like it's, really good for you to set that boundary for yourself because in the past when you told them you were being victimized as a child they didn't believe you but yeah like that's kind of a good boundary to set for yourself it is and it's a necessary boundary so then this is when I finally got help I finally went to a doctor and was put on medication and this medication has been a part of my healing for six years now. Did you ever do therapy of any sort or just the medication was good enough to help? I started doing online therapy. It was really scary for me to like make an appointment and show up to that appointment and have to drive somewhere to that appointment. (laughs) I didn't like that. Like my anxiety was still intense with a few things. I will always recommend online therapy for those who like really struggle with going somewhere and meeting a therapist at their office. Online therapy has been amazing. I can testify that there is healing in vulnerability. I realized that when I released to Robert that I had been molested and I told my family, it was like I felt like I could breathe again. So when I share things about my life that are, you know, typically hard things to share. I'm, I find healing. I really do. And, and I just, all I can say is that there is healing in being vulnerable and it's like taking charge of my life again. And how are your kids after everything? Do either of them remember anything? They do. I'm very open with my children. I, we communicate a lot about stuff. I'm so glad that I am open with them because it has, shown how compassionate they are. And I would love for that to continue, that they become adults, compassionate adults. And they do remember. And every time like Maggie goes, mom, you're looking a little tired. Do you need to go take a nap? You know, like they try to take care of me or Emmy and you'll say, I'll take care of Maggie. I'll fix her a snack. You go lay down. I'm like, I'm okay. Like, it's okay. Oh, and I found out that I 
I have to do an intense workout every day in order to not feel tired too. That's so interesting, isn't it? Interesting I know. How, like when we're actually taking care of the body that God gave us, all of a sudden everything is better. This is very much one of those oxygen masks concepts. If we do not take care of ourselves, we can't take care of those around us. Let's try hard not to have to get to the point of psychosis. Take a moment and ask for help if you need a nap or a break. If you need an intense workout, do it. Listen to what your body needs and then do it. It seems to me, through this whole story, her husband Robert really has been a great right-hand man. And she confirmed this. Oh my gosh. Robert is a godsend. He's been so patient and understanding throughout all of my issues. And I feel like a, a lot of people would give up, you know? And he hasn't once. He's been so supportive of everything that I need to do to get better. And that, to me, that shows me what actual, like, true love is. And it's like he proves to me every day that I do deserve it. This whole time, Bethany has struggled a lot with motherhood and hoping to be good enough for her kids. This is super relatable. And I'd guess many of us have these worries. Are we good enough for these kids? Are we a good mom? I now am at a point in my life where I do believe I am a good mom. I mean, I'm always going to make mistakes. You know, I'm not perfect, but I'm giving everything that my kids need and more. And I'm so grateful that I'm finally at a point in my life where I feel the healing, you know, that I'm healing every day and that I'm able to help my children through whatever healing they need. I just love them so much, you know? It's like, I love them so much, it hurts type love. And they tell me I'm a good mom, so I'm just gonna take it. Sex is kind of a taboo topic, especially in church culture. And I want to know if Bethany had anything to say to women or girls who have lost their virginity sooner than they had planned or struggle with morality. Her advice is just so beautiful. It's okay to make mistakes because we are all going to make mistakes throughout our life. And each of our mistakes look different from one another, but it's okay to make mistakes and it's not the end of the world. And you're not dirty and you're not gross and you're not broken and you're not used. You still deserve to be loved. I hate purity culture. I really hate it. It's very damaging. And I'm not saying like, go out there and just sleep with whoever you want. I'm saying if you start to see a pattern, there's something deeper. And to get that taken care of, get that looked at, find out why. But your mistakes do not define you. And your mistakes are not your identity. They are an aftermath of something that has affected you. You know, whether it's a trauma, something's not going right in your life. It's an aftermath of that. It's, it's not the reason for your pain. It's the aftermath because of your pain. Wow. And life hasn't been perfect yet for her. They later moved to Arizona. She's been diagnosed with hypothyroidism and kidney disease. She has to eat very strict and life keeps rolling on. Thinking back through her story... I was curious, 
With all that she had been through, she mentioned hating purity culture. She mentioned men in the church not treating her very kindly. She talked of how her family didn't teach her the gospel quite the right way. After all of this, I wondered, why the heck did she keep going back to the gospel? What brought me back is learning that I can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm not part of the church because of shame or because of the fear of not being saved or the fear of not going to the celestial kingdom. I don't believe in teaching by fear. I believe in teaching by the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm in it for Jesus. I stay because Jesus knows me and he has stood by my side and he has he has already suffered my sins for me. And the suffering that I experience from my sins is so minuscule compared to the suffering that he felt. So I stay with the church, but I'd rather say I stay with the gospel. I stay with the gospel for Jesus. And with that, I ask, and I'll always ask, what do you wish people saw beyond your white picket fence? I think it's really important to not assume that someone's okay. Those of us who have dealt with trauma and issues, we are really good at hiding it. We are really good at hiding our trauma, especially from childhood abuse. I may be bubbly and happy and I want to be your friend, you know, on the outside of things, but on the inside, I am still healing. And there is a lot more to me than my mistakes. There's a lot more to me than my depression. And there's a lot more to me than my future mistakes because I'm not going to be perfect forever. I'm perfectly imperfect. And I'm going to rock that the best way I can. I would say, be mindful of every person you come in contact with because we all are going through something and you may not have to understand what that person's going through, but you can still express compassion and empathy and sit with them. It's so important to uphold our baptismal covenants of mourning with those who mourn it's okay to hurt together because you love this other person so much that you are willing to do that with them. This has been another episode of Beyond the Picket Fence. If you have a story to share or you know someone that does, please reach out to me on my website, Facebook, or Instagram. The link for all these things should be in the show notes. Will, they will be in the show notes. I'm going to put them there for you. And as always, be kind because you never know what's going on beyond the picket fence.